The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. I am Jay. On this week's episode of Film Jitsu, Jason does his first Film Jitsu review. He's going to review Tom Hooper's Cats. <laughs> We're also going to do our bottom five film assholes in the spirit of the potential of a butthole cut of Cats. I guess we'll come to find out. We'll also give you a little bit of staff picks before Jason reveals what film I am going to be watching for our next episode. Spotlight and a drum roll, please. It's party time. The most deserving cat will be reborn into another life. So they can be who they've always dreamed of being. So Jason, you're still here yeah. a week later. Oh, yeah. You've done it. I, did uh, it. I set you up with a, a pretty nasty first review. Yeah, that was brutal. I gave you cats. <laughs> a nine a nine time. Razzie nominee, a six-time Razzie winner, including Worst Picture and Worst Director for Tom Hooper, a guy who won an Oscar. I know. I know. Tell me, <laughs> how you doing? Are you okay? <laughs> Not really. You know, Mike, this was a, a cruel thing that you did right from the start. I mean, this was just going right after. If I have an Achilles heel, it's probably with musicals. I I feel like people spontaneously breaking into song sends my vicarious embarrassment into overdrive. Okay. So all right. I, I can't even, I can't even handle people singing in general. I, I can't, unless there's a stage involved. I'm going to, I'm going to go way back here and, and reference something really fairly obscure. Right. Do you remember that Nell Carter show called give me a break? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I did not expect right. to be going for, here already. For, for, for those who don't know, it was a sitcom about a black housekeeper played by singer-actress Nell Carter, that worked for a white police officer's family, which I think would be a really neat show nowadays. It would be something. Anyhow, it ran it ran from 81 to 87, and it introduced a child actor named, can you guess? Joey Lawrence to the world. Oh, boy. Who would later go on to star in Blossom and have a short-lived pop star career. Anyhow, there were episodes where little Joey was asked to sing on Give Me a Break. And I shit you not, I would hide behind my couch because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> so needless to say, people just suddenly singing in a movie to move a plot along, I, I can't handle it. Like if it's West Side Story or Wizard of Oz, it's no good for me. Wizard yeah. of Oz? Really? I, yeah, I didn't I know this I know, about I can't, you. I can't handle it. I don't, I wow. hate Wizard of Oz. I hate it. Oh and, man, Wizard of Oz is almost a top five favorite film for me. No, nope. The Wizard of Oz was the movie that made me fall in love with movies when the, I was a the kid. The minute I see the cowardly lion, the minute I see him just, oh, you know, like I get the shivers and I want to die. Wow. Like I do. I, I get, no, I can't handle it. Major revelations right here at the beginning of the episode. So take this response to the cowardly lion and then just multiply it by dozens of characters that you've unleashed on me in Tom Hooper's Cats, and you'll get an idea of just how awful this is. But then combine it, combine it, Mike, with the atrocity that is the musical score of this particular show. Okay, so I'm going to just, I'm going to, I loathed Cats, Mike. It was difficult to watch. 
and unbearable to listen to. It left me feeling exhausted and hateful. And it's not because it's all bad either. It's actually a mixed bag, which makes the whole thing more frustrating because you cannot dismiss it outright. The whole thing comes from like a T.S. Eliot series of poems. I think he wrote it for his own like nieces and nephews or something like that. Okay. And he he writes these simple poems to read to kids about cats and their lives and whatever else. Right. That's a good way to like put kids down. I get it. Then Andrew Lloyd Webber apparently on loads of cocaine and peyote, decides, hey, I want to set this to the worst possible vaudevillian soundtrack known to man. And it becomes this nadir of cultural bankruptcy. Because jellicles can, angelicals do. Jellicles do, angelicals can. Jellicles can, angelicals do. Jellicles do, angelicals can. Jellicles can, angelicals do. Andrew Lloyd Webber had enough audacity to disown the movie in the press, say that there were problems with acting, that there were decisions made with the script, that there were problems with the effects. And this son of a bitch is is really the primary reason this whole thing's there. And he kind of distanced himself from it. Like, oh, it wasn't, it was such a departure from my art. My stagey costume cats. And that's what it is. And it's not the movie's fault. The movie, the movie gets a lot of blame. And the visual effects guys get a lot of blame, which is just, to me, utter horseshit. Because the craftsmanship of this movie is very good. The effects are very good. It, it's it's like they took everything that was on stage and they put it on screen. They digitally added some really cool 1920s London backdrops. They really do a good job of like showing the ears twitch or showing the tails move or whatever else. What's the butthole situation? Yeah, that's the thing, right? Everybody wants to know about the buttholes. <laughs> Basically, what I've heard is that there was an effect that was created by the fur and the rear ends of, of a couple characters that made it vaguely look like there might be an anus at play here. And so they said, you know, we had to digitally alter that. And, and that's fine. I mean, like, I get that. I, I totally understand that. But there is no butthole cut. I don't think unless they specifically engineer one because of interest in the movie. What's remarkable to me is that the effects team really gets slagged and dissed so hard for this movie. Because I think that the craftsmanship here is is really A-list level. And what, what's really upsetting is one of the effects houses went out of business because of some of the mistakes that made it to the final cut when the movie first premiered. Like, I don't know if you heard about this, but like Dame Judi Dench, at one point you see her quote unquote paws or hands, they're human hands, but she had her wedding ring on still and it wasn't digitally removed. And I'm like, how the hell is that the effects team's fault? Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as the story goes, they actually had to send a second cut out to theaters. Like the movie was released. Yeah. It was out for a while and then they had to send a second cut with some of those errors fixed. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I've never heard of something like that happening before. No, and it, it was it was unprecedented when it happened. So they had something like maybe eight weeks or something like that to do a series of effects. And they spent six of those weeks just working on the trailer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they only they had like a, absolutely no time left to work on the film. And part of the reason really was that Tom Hooper. Oscar winning best director winner for the King's Speech. He, he, which by the way, was the movie he made prior to Cats. So this is his right. follow up 
But sure. for for Hooper in particular, who does like wordy British dramas, right? Like, what the hell is he doing in a, like a CGI extravaganza? Literally every shot of this one hour, 50 minute movie is effects. If you think about that, that's extraordinary. I am a little disappointed to find out it was under two hours. Now that you say it, <laughs> you I, I hope that this was one of those two hour, 20 minute jobs, man. I'm a little bummed that it was oh, a man. lean. It was a lean hour and 50 minutes. That's too bad. Oh, yes. So lean. It didn't feel like three years of my life at all. That's because you had to watch James Corden for almost two hours. He wasn't the problem. You know what? He wasn't the problem. You know who the problem was, was this guy, Robert Fairchild as Monku Strap. These names, by the way, every single one of these names absolutely torment me. Judy Dench as old Deuteronomy. You know, it's, it's just, these are, these are everything about the original script is painful. And I know that a lot of, a lot of this is faithful to the original story. And the real problem here with Cats isn't even Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's the people who saw it on Broadway and turned it into a cultural sensation. It's the people that created the mega musical. It's the hippies turned corporatists of the 80s who had absolutely no taste and no culture and no sense of class who thought that this was worth elevating. And then in 2019, we collectively all asked what the fuck and torpedoed this thing just the way it should have been done 40 years prior. Course <laughs> correction. Course correction. We have fixed the timeline. We are now on a onto a better place. I have never seen this movie, but I did. As I said, I've seen the stage play, not in well, real life, of course, it. but I've sure. And yeah. all of the things you're saying, I'm willing to, to back up. The names were infuriating and it seemed like, a joke that we were all playing on ourselves. Like the first person saw it and was like, Oh God, that was terrible. Somebody else has to fall for it. It's how I feel about the grapefruit. I feel like the first person that ever ate a grapefruit was like, Oh my God. And then handed it to their idiot friend. And like, nobody has actually had the courage through the ages to say that this thing sucks. That's what happened to cats. That that is a hundred percent. Correct. We just lost big grapefruit. That's the problem. I just alienated big grapefruit. So sorry about that. (laughs) The problem really is that source material. I think it really does come down to that. I think that Hooper tried his damn best to do what he could. I think that everybody in this tried their damn best. And it was funny because Ian McClellan uh, plays Gus in this movie, who's uh, an older cat. By the way, the story, just in case anybody was wondering what the story is to cats, it's essentially a... Yeah, I guess we should it, talk about that. Feline, We're 15 minutes in here. We should talk about it. It's a feline it. version of Chorus Line. Like, except except oh, yeah. the thing that you're getting cast for is rebirth, because cats have nine lives, which is kind of dark right. and a little bit weird. And then they go off in like a giant balloon, and they go to the afterlife and maybe come back. I don't really understand any of it. I don't understand. I don't know why, but... That's the plot, quote unquote, the plot. And apparently there wasn't really a plot with Cats, which is part of the failing of the movie, is that it it tries to apply some sort of narrative structure to a to a thing that didn't have one. But anyway, you know, Ian McClellan's in this thing and he plays this old actor cat. All I once was a star of the highest degree. I have acted with Irving. I've acted with tree. 
And I like to recall my success of the halls when the gallery once gave me seven cat calls. I felt like McClellan in some way as Gus was portraying every talented craftsperson that ever contributed blood, sweat, and tears to any variation of this production. That he was somehow like just struggling to get some sort of art out there. And at the end, he doesn't win. He doesn't get picked. <laughs> like, he doesn't get to go. <laughs> and it was like, why not, Gus? Just give him some grace. Just give the craftspeople some grace. And McClellan's really good, right? Because he's doing he's doing film acting. And Judy Dench, she's really good. She's doing film acting. And then you've got this next tier down that's doing a separate type of acting, which is like the theater kid acting. Play into the back of the audience, but the camera is literally three inches away from their face. They're just brutal to watch there's this have you know what i'm talking about that that theater kid i do that, i have to think you're talking about james Corden. no that he, guy see that guy is on all the I'm time telling you he he struck a decent balance but this there there was both uh robert fairchild as monk strap and francesca hayward as victoria the white and francesca hayward i i hate to pick on her because this is like her big break role but she really did only hold one singular expression of sort of starry-eyed wistfulness the entire time <laughs> it was just kind of painful like I, they didn't let her do anything else and so you had her and then you had robert fairchild sort of fake confident unblinking charisma that is super unsettling to watch in close up it just feels yeah. super stagey and super weird and he wasn't the only one and i think cordon probably falls more into that category, but I didn't find him nearly as unsettling to watch. And so it wasn't the effects. It wasn't even the character design or the half cat, half whatever creepazoid things. It was that theater kid that's playing to the back of the audience that you're seeing just so close up. And it looks artificial and weird and it's unsettling. And then there's a third kind of acting just to throw in something else to unbalance this. There's Taylor Swift and Jennifer Hudson who are doing classic sing acting. So if you think of like Bono in the 80s or like classic Celine Dion where they're really like emoting through the music. Right. They're, they're doing that. If you just have all of these different performance styles, you can see Hooper has no idea what to do with the effects. He has no idea what to do with the actors. He realizes he's in a shit show from the standpoint of a story. <laughs> and it just, it's all just unbearable to watch by the end of it. That's what I was going for, Jay. That's I'm glad to hear that. I'm so proud of you for having taken on this task with such grace and class and frankly a lot less curse words than i was expecting out of you i thought you were just gonna say the f word for 20 straight minutes and then we'd go into the next segment of the show and i'm a little disappointed to hear that we didn't get the butthole cut i was hoping for but here we are nevertheless we're gonna go ahead and do our bottom five assholes i'm a little curious uh, how each one of us approached this list but uh, that was the task at hand. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of ways that we could have done this, right? We could have talked about assholes behind the scenes. We could have talked about um, assholes on screen. We could have taken it literally, I suppose. I'm sure there are movies with assholes in them. <laughs> but I think that uh, for me personally, I went with characters that I despised, that I found you know reprehensible in some way. 
but they were largely in pretty good to great films. So I took that approach. I'm very interested to know what you did, Mike, and I really want to hear your number five. I spent a lot of time, probably way too much time, thinking about the difference between assholes and douchebags. Yeah. Okay. They definitely aren't the same thing, but as I was putting my list together, I kept getting caught up on, well, this person's really more of a douchebag than an asshole. But when I stopped to ask myself what I meant, I wasn't able to clearly articulate that for myself. (laughs) So I did some asshole soul searching. And the conclusion that I came to uh, is that it really has to do with intent and malice. Douchebags aren't really even aware that they're douchebags, and they aren't really trying to be. They're sort of oblivious to their own douchebaggery. My go-to example for this is Bill Lumberg from Office Space. He sucks, but he isn't trying to hurt anyone. He's just a douchebag. An asshole enjoys being an asshole. They know they're an asshole. They do it anyway. They like seeing other people suffer. They like being the cause of that suffering. And so for me, the big difference is intent. Uh, And and I'm glad I cleared that up for myself because (laughs) I do think there's a difference. In fact, I think there's enough of a difference that one day we may have a whole separate bottom five just (laughs) for douchebags. And now I'm ready to go on that one too. One last important caveat before I give you my number five, and and thank you for the, uh, the lengthy introduction that I'm giving you. There was also an important difference for me between an asshole and somebody that's being evil or criminal. Mm. So, for example, Biff Tannen from Back to the Future is definitely an asshole. In fact, he was the first character that popped into my mind, but he makes that that leap into being a date rapist. And that's a whole different thing for me. I, I can't make light of something like that. So I didn't include him. Same thing with Nazis on film. I can't say that a Nazi is just an asshole. I mean, they are, but clearly for me, it's a lot bigger than that. So I I left them off. That was my approach. With all that said, number five is a guy that I think perfectly fits my definition of an asshole. And that is Dr. Jonas Miller from Twister, (laughs) played by Carrie Elwe. That is a hell of a good choice. And he, he just, he's smarmy. He's very despicable. And he stole something. You stole her, you damn thief. What is the matter with you? You stole my design, you son of a bitch! Calm down! The hell are you talking about? Dorothy, you took her, you damn thief! Oh, I get it. You want to take credit for my design, is You're that a liar. It? She was our idea and you know it. Unrealized idea. Unrealized. <laughs> He's such an asshole. He's the rival storm chaser to Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. They used to all work together, but Jonas, I guess he sold out to Big Tornado or whoever funds that kind of thing. Uh, He's stolen Bill Bill and Joe's design for Dorothy. That was their cutting edge instrument for studying tornadoes. and, And Dr. Miller takes all the credit. He's just a total shit at every possible opportunity. He's basically riding Bill's coattails and copying everything he does. And then to top it all off, when Bill warns him that he's driving right into a tornado, Jonas ignores him because he's such a pompous asshole and plows right into a tornado, (laughs) explodes himself, explodes his team. He's just a character you want to punch in the nose from the very first second you lay eyes on him. And he never does anything to change my mind. Really, it's a testament to Carrie Elway's too, because he's such a believable dickhead in the movie. 
he's back at number five here because this isn't a character that I would think would pop up on a lot of lists. This one is, I think, a little bit special to me because I watched Twister about a million times between hmm. 1996 and 2000. And I wanted to, to pop him in the face every single time. So he's back at number five. I don't think it's an obvious choice, but Dr. Jonas Miller is my number five. That's a fantastic choice, Mike. Thanks. And I think I'm going to follow it up with somebody that's very similar in many respects. And that would be Harry Ellis from Die Hard, 1988. I knew this was going to be on your list. John McTiernan. You know, uh, he is uh, he's as obvious as I think I got with a pick, although I've got another one that may be as obvious. And everyone knows Die Hard. You know, everyone everyone's familiar with Bruce Willis, John McClane, stuck in a building, you know. <laughs> And he's trapped with terrorists that turn out to be bank robbers. You got Hans Gruber, who's a villain. And I see that very differently, like you, than an asshole. Villains frequently command some respect, which assholes never do. Sure. And also, they are, like, sharply dressed. Or, (laughs) like, in (laughs) in this case, he had a lot of style. So as much as he's sneering and snarky and whatever else, Gruber was not my choice. It was Harry Ellis, played by Hart Bachner. Bachner doesn't have a particularly long acting career, but I think it's really important to note that he directed the 1994 comedy PCU that I actually found really, really damn funny. I had no idea that that was true. <laughs> and it was, it stars uh, John Favreau in dreads as a stoner, as like a college stoner. So I think that's an important side note. But Bachner, as Harry Ellis, you know, he's the guy that hits on John McClane's wife. At the beginning, during the Christmas party, <laughs> and then later on follows that up by basically blowing his identity to Hans while trying to make a deal. And that just goes complete tits up for him <laughs> in one of the most cathartic pleasures of all of Die Hard when he meets his untimely surprise end. I also think it's really important to note that it was the Rolex that he gives Holly that ultimately dooms Hans which gives Ellis some sort of weird thematic redemption. <laughs> That's very generous. Revenge revenge of the asshole. And regardless, I think he was a really good choice for number five. I was so close to doing the same. I knew it. I think by my definition, he he leaned more into that like classic 80s douchebag for me by my definition, but he was he is, almost my first thought. He is, he is 100% Gordon Gecko trash. I called him a whelp of Wall Street. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Well, my number four will be quick because we talked about this movie actually a lot in our last episode. But I think if you're putting together the Mount Rushmore of assholes, you have to include from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Little Miss Veruca Salt. Oh, jeez. Do I feel bad for including a child in my list? Sure. (laughs) Is it legit? Totally. Even Grandpa Joe, who in his own way is kind of an asshole, totally says that she needs a good kick in the pants. She's a spoiled little brat who acts like the whole world belongs to her and fuck the rest of us. Anyone whose catchphrase is, I want it now, deserves <laughs> to be on this list. And so Veruca Salt made the cut for me at number four. I think that's a solid choice. She was a total prick. <laughs> <laughs> and very sure. memorable. You know, the remake, I don't even remember the, the actress that, that played Veruca. I don't remember anything about Veruca in the remake. But man, in that original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, that little girl has withstood the test of time as one of cinema's great tiny little assholes. Well, for my number four, I'm pulling out 
uh, a rather interestingly named character as well, and that would be Manny Carp from 1981's Blowout, directed by Brian De Palma. Blowout is a political thriller that has a real tongue-in-cheek black humor quality to it. It stars John Travolta and Robocop's Nancy Allen. Travolta plays a uh, sound engineer that witnesses and records the audio of a political assassination, essentially. And then the two of them are being stalked by a schizoid killer played by John Lithgow. Obviously, by my definition, Lithgow's not the jerk here. The guy that's the jerk is the guy that photographs the entire accident. Sure. That would be Dennis Franz as Manny Carp, the seedy photographer that worked with Allen's, you know, hooker with a heart of gold. They used to take photos of like adulterers, like guys cheating on their wives or whatever. She would like seduce them into a room and then Carp would come in and get photos of them or whatever. You've been Carped. Yeah, you've been. So, so the, there's a great or terrible moment, I should say, in in Manny's like cesspool of a hotel room where he where you really get to know just what a skeez he is. He's drinking out of a handle of booze. She comes in and he starts putting the moves on his own partner, forcing himself onto her. Ugh. She knees him in the junk, gets out of there or whatever else. But Dennis Franz, who exudes kind of an asshole mentality anyway, he played Sipowitz on NYPD Blue. He played... Very memorably, he played the chief of airport police in Die Hard 2, which is another great asshole role. Yes. Here, he really, really, really digs down and deep and finds the real just nadir of humanity. So I go with Manny Carr from Blowout as my number four. I love how deep you're digging on this stuff. That's great. What a good pick. I had a hard time for my number three choosing which Ben Affleck asshole I was going to go with. <laughs> I I was almost going to go with Shannon, the proprietor of Fashionable Mail and Kevin Smith's Mall Rats, a guy who likes to have sex in a very uncomfortable place. The back of a Volkswagen? Indeed. But in the end, my choice for number three is officially O'Bannon, the fifth-year senior in Richard Linkletter's Dazed and Confused. Uh. This is one of my favorite movies, like a possible top five favorite watch from me. Not best movie of all time, but a movie I just really enjoy spending time with. I can watch it again and again. I love the dialogue, the characters, obviously the soundtrack. The closest thing the movie has to a villain is Ben Affleck's O'Bannon, who lives to haze the incoming freshman. It's his only role in the film. He's a guy whose entire reason for being is to terrorize kids that are smaller and weaker than he is. He's totally blind to the fact that his failing his senior year makes him a complete loser and no one in this entire town can stand his guts, which almost makes him more of a douchebag than an asshole. But he thinks he's awesome and he gets off on chasing down these poor kids and beating their asses with a wooden paddle. He's the town punchline. And whenever other characters in the movie are talking about him, and this is important for me, they're openly calling him an asshole. Mm. No one ever disagrees. Whenever people discuss O'Bannon, they talk about what an asshole he is. <laughs> and I guess my thing is that when the script repeatedly calls a character an asshole, <laughs> I think it's a pretty standout reason to make a bottom five list. I love the characters in Dazed and Confused. And because O'Bannon spends the whole movie terrorizing them, he found a spot on my list. Where are you with McConaughey's character in all of that? He's kind of a douche too, right? Or is he a douchebag, not a not an asshole? 
He's sleazy. sleazy. He's definitely sleazy. Yeah. There's probably a lot about that movie that in 2022 feels a lot more gross than it did back then. I, I think some of the things that we celebrate about those characters, all right, all right, all right. I don't know if we would find them as charming today, but that's not really the point of cinema. It was a, a movie set in the late 70s, is what it is. But O'Bannon for me, clearly an asshole. At my number three, I went super obvious. I, I may have gone even more obvious than Harry Ellis. Uh, and that would have been Keldon Hockley from 1999's Titanic. Yep. <laughs> and I, I have to say, you know, I just rewatched Titanic recently. So he, all of these, by the way, came to mind. There was no research involved. These five of were course. all picked by just thinking on the on the thing. And when it came to Kale, I actually had to I had to really think about what it was about Titanic that I still liked. And as it turns out, it was Billy Zane's performance as this asshole character that really stood out for me. Yes, Kate Winslet, great as always, right? Leonardo DiCaprio, he he was very good here. I think that this was one of his best performances, honestly. It's cool to hate on Titanic, but I think if we're being fair, now that we're all a little bit more grown up, it's a really very solid film. I think that everything that's not set in quote unquote present day is very good. And then anything that's set in the present day with like Bill Paxton and stuff. I mean, look, I love me some Bill Paxton. Of course. He is horrible in this movie. <laughs> horrible. Titanic should have just been set in the past and we should have left it that way. We and thank goodness Billy Zane is in that part of the movie. Billy Zane brings almost every line is delivered through like a perfectly clenched jaw. So he's like, yes, Rose is displeased. Do you know I quote that constantly? <laughs> My mother's name is Rose. Yes, so of like, course. That must that must come in handy. Tut tut, Rose is displeased. And, you know, I think that it's the fact that he kind of bullies Kate Winslet throughout the whole thing. He's really great lines from him and, and these really jerky things that he does. But then as the ship starts sinking, he gets even worse, right? He goes from just a, a bully of a fiance to the bargaining and, and worried version of Kale. And that's when everything gets crazy because he, he makes that deal with, with Rose where he's like, oh, I've got a, I've got a boat over there and we can go, me, you, and Jack. And then immediately reneges on Jack and just like leaves him on the boat. And then, of course, he his whole ride doesn't work out. Somebody realizes what an asshole he is, throws the money back at him. So what's he do? Do you remember what he does? I don't. To get off the boat? He finds a, an abandoned child. A little oh, girl yes. That's crying. Women and children first. Pretends it's his and then looks at a guy and says, I'm the only thing she has in this world. And then gets on with her and immediately, more or less immediately hands her off without a worry at all. At that point, he firmly landed as number three on my list of assholes. Good old Billy Zane. You can always count on him to be an asshole. <laughs> my number two, I defy anyone listening to tell me I'm wrong about this. <laughs> it won't happen. You can't do it. This is a truth of the universe. Scientific fact. My number two is one of the most fist-clenching, teeth-gnashing, makes-me-want-to-scream assholes in the history of film. A character I've heard other people speak of with genuine hate in their voice. I'm talking about Dolores Umbridge mm. from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. She was played perfectly by Imelda Staunton, and I dare say is one of cinema's most universally hated characters ever. She's the high inquisitor 
sent by the Ministry of Magic, basically to fuck up everything about Hogwarts. Listen, I can't believe that I give this many fucks about Harry Potter either, <laughs> but I do. I love these movies. I think the, the continuity of the cast has a lot to do with that. And I think for me, Dolores Umbridge is maybe the best villain in the series. Voldemort's obviously evil, but Dolores Umbridge... And how great is that name, by the way? Yeah, right. Umbridge. Umbridge. It's perfect. Uh, it's, you know, it's so it's so sort of highfalutin, but also shitty. Mm. She's just the biggest kind of self-righteous. She's like the worst kind of church lady. That person that presents themselves as being above reproach when actually she's just a disgusting, hateful asshole. I think I really respond to that kind of character, the religious zealot type. I'm talking somebody like Marsha Gay Harden in The Mist, uh, Darabont's The Mist. Oh, yeah. Also, the character of Bev Keen from the Netflix show Midnight Mass from late 2021. These are the characters that are easy to hate. And for me, nobody fits that mold better than Dolores Umbridge. Just makes your skin crawl with what an asshole it, she is in that very silent prim and proper like you can't question what she's doing it's the worst kind of asshole number two on my list with a bullet she's an authoritarian tyrant and the person that paved the way for that character to even exist is my number two and that is nurse ratchet yes from 1975's one flew over the cuckoo's nest easily yep. directed by milos foreman Starring Jack Nicholson in a live wire performance as Randall McMurphy. Uh, you've got Louise Fletcher standing toe to toe with Nicholson in his prime. I mean, we're talking mid 70s to mid 80s Nicholson. There's almost no one that delivered as many consistently amazing performances. And here, Louise Fletcher completely outmatches him and every turn. She is extraordinary in this. Icy, cold, venal. And it's it's little, There, it, there's still vulnerability in her eyes. It's her performance is just so human yet reprehensible. Her ability to take little things away from the inmates at this mental hospital where the movie is set is just, it's, these little screws that she turns to these guys who don't really have anything, you know, not putting on the world series chief raised his hand, you know, it right. was like she doesn't give them anything. The cigarettes, I want my cigarettes, you know, it's like, no, I'm not going to give you your cigarettes. You know, it was just, there was, there was such a devotion to order over empathy in that character. And hell, I mean, that movie was one of the few that won the top five. And both she and Nicholson won for best actor, best actress. She was a nobody. I mean, essentially, she was a TV actress. Right. Came out of nowhere. It was a perfect match between the material and the actress. So, uh, you know, you got to go with Nurse Ratched, a character that's so evil <laughs> that she was later reprised decades later. She, she was brought back. In that show, Once Upon a Time, she was like a subsidiary villain to the big queen. Yes. And then in a Netflix show called Ratchet. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Know. And as a healthcare professional, I can tell you that it's oh. such a big deal that she is the stand-in for any unkind 
healthcare worker. We still hear people say, oh, she's a total nurse ratchet, right? As a matter of fact, that character sort of set a lot of us in the industry back because we are still fighting against this pop culture representation of what a nurse is or what somebody who cares for the mentally ill is. We still fight against that perception all because of that one character. So she was so effective as being that asshole that she sort of damaged an industry in the process. (laughs) That's an asshole. That is an asshole. (laughs) And speaking of an asshole. You're number one. You can't have expected that I would have gone this entire list without having at least one literal actual for really real asshole right we've been talking about people that are assholes but because at the end of the day i'm nothing if not juvenile so here it is in my number one spot this pick is from a movie i bet most of our listeners haven't seen and that might be for the better because this is not for the faint of heart i'm going with the shunting scene from brian usna's 1989 body horror masterpiece society this movie is fucking nuts like it's awful i know we give all the body horror credit to david cronenberg and rightfully so but this might be the mona lisa of melting assholes (laughs) so here's what happens let me break it down basically the main character discovers that his whole family and in fact all the wealthy social elite country clubbers in his town are part of some kind of alien orgy sex cult i think they're actually supposed to be some other kind of alternative species of human not aliens exactly i don't think but whatever the point here is that they have this process this ritual they call the shunting which is a remarkably almost impressively upsetting word shunting the shunting is where they kind of meld their bodies together with their human victims and consume their nutrients. They absorb the bodies of each other. It reminds me almost of taking two different balls of Play-Doh and smushing them together. So you can't separate them anymore. Only with way more slime and viscera. It is gross. All time gross. It's hard to explain precisely how gross the scene is at one point mid shunt. And spoiler alert here to anybody that wants to see the movie Society. Here we go. I'm about to spoil the big reveal of Society. Pause now if you'd rather not know. At one point, mid-shunt, the main character, uh, Billy, discovers that he and, in fact, his entire immediate family are actually this species of high society monsters. And he finds his parents and his sister shunting people. The bodies are all mixed and melted and connected and moist. It is so, so gross. And for me to say that with all the bizarre garbage that I've watched over the years, for me to sit here and tell you this is beyond gross really says something. Billy bumps into his own father who is bent over on all fours and his face is where his asshole should be. Yeah. My number one asshole is dad's face is where his asshole should be. From society. In fact, the scene almost defies explanation. We really should probably just go ahead and roll a clip here. Uh, uh, Well, son, I guess you're right. 
I am a butthead. Yep, that's a real thing in a real movie. You kind of have to see it to believe it. I have seen it. Uh, I actually bought the DVD based on the sort of explosive level of praise that this movie seems to earn in horror circles. And I found it nigh unwatchable, not because it was gross, just because I think it is a completely ineffective narrative. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a great pick if you're talking literal assholes. I can't think of another one yes. that I've seen. 100%. <laughs> However, it's not a great movie. As a matter of fact. It's a terrible movie. It's, 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 it, it, I mean, it would be something that I would, I would have picked to show you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that in this age of, of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, the idea that the wealthy will literally consume you and turn your face into an actual asshole rings especially true. But but really, you can find the shunting scene on YouTube. You do not need to watch everything that leads up to this scene. <laughs> but because it is a literal asshole in the film, it makes my number one. You don't need to check out the movie, but society, I just kind of puked in my mouth. Well, quality number one at that. We were definitely... For most of our choices aligned, and then we flew off in separate directions for our number ones, but we both did something a little bit different. You went literally with an asshole. I went with the hero of a movie, who I really think a lot of people might not realize is a titanic asshole. <laughs> and that would be L.B. Jeff Jeffries from 1954's Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock. And yeah. In this case, huh. you basically got Jimmy Stewart, America's sweetheart, one of the American Film Institute's top three American actors of all time. He exudes sweetness and charisma and likability. In this movie, he's laid up. He's a photographer. He's an adventurer type. He goes out, he photographs race. <laughs> I think there's a shot somewhere where he took a, a, a photograph in the middle of a racetrack. <laughs> right? So he's, he's supposed to be this tough guy that lives an adventurous life. He's got Grace Kelly, the Grace Kelly, pre-Princess of Monaco. Sure. Doting on him, trying to seduce him with negligee and cooked meals that she's bringing to him in his like tiny little apartment. And, you know, he just kind of, he's dismissive of her. And he spends his days looking out his window at all of his neighbors and sort of judging them, sort of writing the narratives of what they're doing or whatever else. And he's just, he's a creep. He's just a creep. He also has this great ball-breaking nurse that comes in, played by Thelma Ritter, who is just phenomenal. And I mean, the, the writing in this movie is so terrific. The dialogue is snappy and whatever else, but nothing can change the fact that LB, Jeff Jeffries, feels as though his opinion is the only one that matters every time he opens his mouth. Are you throwing shade at me right now? Are you, are you, I feel this is touching a little close to home. I feel like I'm, I, I feel like maybe we're having a fight. I think you're having a fight with yourself, Mike. Are we working some stuff out here in your number one pick? Please. Stop. What do I do? 
I think that the the deal with Jeff really gets bad um, by the end, and you really realize he's an asshole when Grace Kelly's character Lisa sneaks into an apartment across the way of a guy who allegedly may have killed his wife, according to Jeff. And so she she goes into this house. The guy comes home, and all Jeff can do is hide in the shadows and pick up a phone and quietly talk to, to the police and get them to come and save her. He doesn't make noise. He doesn't say, hey, stop. He doesn't do anything. The, the main reason why this all bothers me and why I put him so high up on my list is that he's supposed to be the hero. And instead, you just get this coward. And that, to me, is a prime level asshole. I love that you went there. We went from shunting to Hitchcock in but one pick. Jay, that was a lot of fun. I, I think for our second episode to be talking about Nurse Ratchet and Hitchcock and buttholes and shunting, we're having a heck of a time here on Film Jitsu. I hope our <laughs> listeners are, too. Now we get into a part of the show where we can stop talking about some of the terrible things and get into some stuff we love. We're going to give our staff picks. Yeah, I got to tell you, Mike. After talking about buttholes this whole time, I'm really looking forward to talking about staff's picks. Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. I see what I did there. Yeah, that's maybe my bad. Well, uh, I'll just I'll just run with it from here because all this talk of assholes really put me in a mood. Right? <laughs> I feel like I need a cinematic shower. And I imagine our listeners are probably feeling the same way. And so I wanted to offer up something that gets us feeling good again. With that in mind, my staff pick this week is uh, Inherent Vice by Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm a PTA guy. Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, The Master. I loved Phantom Threads from 2017. I know that you're not a big PTA guy. I, I know that I'm kind of setting us up here a little bit for, for perhaps a disagreement on a staff pick. I know Paul Thomas Anderson is not necessarily your jam. It's not that he's not my jam. Um, it's that Inherent Vice specifically really isn't my jam. And as someone who loves Big Lebowski as much as you do, I don't mm -hmm. understand how you can like the humorless lots of whimsy that is Inherent Vice when compared against basically a similar story with Big Lebowski. The whole time I was watching Inherent Vice, for me, it was actually a pain. It was I felt pained <laughs> like, because wow. I kept thinking about how much better Lebowski is as a movie. And it's a very... And in, how similar they are. As anybody who knows me uh, will tell you, I am a tremendous fan of the big Lebowski. I have traveled across the country uh, for Lebowski fest. I have trophies for the, the Lebowski trivia champion, right? I got pretty nerdy with my Lebowski love. So uh, yeah, I can understand why, why you're drawing the comparison. And oh, it's yeah. certainly one I'll, I'll talk about for me. A Paul Thomas Anderson release is a bit of an event. Like when Inherent Vice came out in two, 2014, I didn't feel let down by it. I was excited. It's based on a Thomas Pynchon novel. Paul Thomas Anderson was actually nominated for a Best Adapted Screenplay oh, Oscar for the film. God. Uh, not yep. that that's everything, <laughs> but it's worth noting, no, right? It's clear to me that Oscars are not always an indicator of quality. And that may tie into something very soon for you, Mike. But go, please speak about this wonderful cinematic treasure that you're <laughs> recommending. 
It's kind of a 1970s L.A. hippie noir story starring Joaquin Phoenix as Doc Sportello. He's kind of our Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, private eye, only he's this burnout hippie type. Yes, you're right. Very much like the dude. He kind of reminds me of like if the dude had an actual job that he took seriously, he'd be Doc Sportello. Um, Sportello is definitely the lazy stoner who happens to go to work sometimes. The simplest explanation of the plot is that Doc is investigating the disappearance of his old girlfriend. I think. (laughs) The plot of Inherent Vice is as complicated and twisty as Chinatown, and even though I'm recommending it, I'm not entirely sure I can tell you exactly what the plot is. (laughs) But for me, that's true of so many really great noir films. Joaquin Phoenix as Doc Sportello, for me, is as memorable as Elliot Gould was in The Long Goodbye. I think he's hilarious in this movie. I think that Josh Brolin is very funny in this movie as the the cop that kind of plays the foil to him. Martin Short has a small role in this movie that absolutely slayed me. The whole picture doesn't work, certainly in the way for me that the big Lebowski does. I absolutely see the comparisons, but I see them as being very different movies with different goals. Inherent Vice has this kind of trippy dreamlike quality where I'm not sure if things are real or if they're a dream or if it's a contact high. It's fantastic. I just, I love entering into this world that PTA has created. Uh, For me, I, I think if you haven't seen Inherent Vice, if you're a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson at all, I wonder why you haven't seen Inherent Vice yet. You should get on that. And if you're just not really sure... This might be a cool place to hop on board. I knew that we were going to have a little bit of a disagreement on here, Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't usually uh, what I I do with a recommendation (laughs) is recommend a film. I know that my co-host is going to immediately shit on, but that's kind of the beauty of our thing, right? So for me, it's a hearty recommend for Inherent Vice. I think what's interesting is that you wanted to use it as a palate cleanser, but to me, that character is just an asshole. Oh, no, Doc is a good guy. Doc's looking for his girlfriend. He's bumbling around town. He's trying to help That's out. I feel like you're just going down right again into the same the same pit. Kind of, well, he's <laughs> here. He's definitely a loser. He's so so slimy. Thank you. Thank you for openly disagreeing. I was hoping that you wouldn't just let me say I loved a movie and then and then like back it off to you. So I that can't. was that was great. That I don't was have, great. <laughs> have the ability to do that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that so. was great. It was awesome. Well, and thank at, you. Perfect. As a less divisive pick, I I was looking for a perfect last asshole for my list. And uh though I went with LB Jeff Jeffries from Rear Window, I had initially started with Jimmy Stewart's character from Vertigo. And uh, Hmm. he is an asshole, but in rewatching the film this week, what I realized was that he's actually a very tragic character. And um, the tragedy of Vertigo, uh, the beauty of the cinematography, the weird, warped, noir, bizarro story, we both went kind of in a similar direction, which is odd. That's interesting. Yep. I think that Kim Novak was a real revelation in this film i think that i know that it was a very challenging production i think all actresses that work for hitchcock really had a very difficult time working with him talk about an asshole right (laughs) exactly right exactly but i think that she brought so much despair 
to Judy, the character, the the brunette version of the character that had pretended to be the wife that was thrown off the roof in the movie and stuff. It's just a, it's a fantastic noir mystery character study with really complicated characters, a really complicated storyline, beautiful cinematography, a great sense of location. So think about those. And I mean, I hate using the word now iconic um, because it seems to be overused so much of late, but many of the shots in Vertigo of San Francisco are so iconic. You know, you just, that that shot of um, her leaping into the water near the Golden Gate Bridge. And, you know, it's just these gorgeous, gorgeous shots. So I revisited that in a search for an asshole, came up instead with a tragic figure and a real gem that I heartily recommend to anybody that hasn't seen it recently. As I know, most everybody has probably seen Vertigo half a dozen times or more. You have put me at something of a disadvantage, sir, because I recommended Inherent Vice, a movie I knew we would fight over. And then you go ahead and give just a wonderful movie that I couldn't possibly say a bad word about. You're right in everything you say. I think I've talked a lot about Hitchcock over the last two episodes, so I'm going to go ahead and not bring his name up for the next three episodes. We'll try that. We'll see if I can do it in the next three episodes. It also seems like we inadvertently went on a Willy Wonka tear in two episodes. So Hitchcock, Willy Wonka, we're in a little bit of a timeout for a while. (laughs) Perfect suggestion. Mike, it's that time, you know. I'm ready. No, you're not ready. I'm feeling good. I'm prepared. Mike, with cats... Best Director winner Tom Hooper followed up his statue win for the King's Speech with a movie that's now most known for the Twitter hashtag release the butthole cut. (laughs) And that got me thinking, not about the other terrible movies, about human cat hybrids, like a cat in a hat, Mm -hmm. or dreadful movies about assholes, The Wolf of Wall Street, which is a dreadful movie, and we can get into that another time. Or even a movie about an asshole, both in real life and on screen, who turns into a cat. Oh. Which would be Nine Lives with Kevin Spacey. Okay, sure. Yep. (laughs) Now, don't worry. All of these are still in the kitty, so to speak, for use in the future. (laughs) Okay. I see what you did there. But what I started thinking about was allegedly great film with an A-list talent and an A-list director that could inflict upon you the kind of wretched discomfort I experienced while watching Cats. And while there's no singing in this picture, there is syphilis, a failed coffee plantation, and a British character named Dennis Finch Hatton that is somehow portrayed by an American actor who doesn't even attempt an English accent. It's also 161 minutes long. And for most of... (laughs) You son of a bitch. (laughs) And for most of that running time, it's a painfully slow romance. Intrigued? Very. Here's the beginning of the Wikipedia write-up to further entice. Karen Blixen recalls her past in Africa, where she moved in 1913 as an unmarried wealthy Danish woman. After having been spurned by her Swedish nobleman lover, she asks his brother, Baron Bror Blixen, to get married out of mutual convenience, and they move to the vicinity of Nairobi, British East Africa. Mike, that's right. Our next episode of Film Jitsu will be devoted to your reaction to none other than the 1985 Best Picture Oscar winner, Out of Africa. 
which won a total of seven awards that year, but is considered by many to be, if not the worst best picture, definitely among the very worst. And while that may not seem too bad as a child of the 80s, I believe it's safe bet that you have the same kind of reverse nostalgia that places out of Africa with movies like Chariots of Fire, On Golden Pond, and Driving Miss Daisy, and a pantheon of stuff you simply never wanted to see as a kid. Maybe you're enlightened now. Maybe you're matured. But based on what I know about you, watching Meryl Streep and Robert Redford swoon for one another during Magic Hour in the Savannah will make you want to gouge your eyes out. Have fun, my friend. May Out of Africa drive you out of your mind. I have tried so hard for so many years to never watch Out of Africa. Yes! For all of the reasons that you stated, absolutely. There is just nothing about that kind of flick that resonates with me at all. I didn't know that it was five years long. That's something to look forward to. You thought you were going to be able to make me watch Cats and you were going to get away scot-free with some 90-minute little test of patience. No, sir. No. You do not get off that easy. I know that we have a friendship built on antagonism. So I was never doubting your ability to come back at me with the film. I didn't see something like this for your first mm. selection. I, I thought for sure I'd be watching some crazy B grade so-and-so, mm -hmm. but we've seen that a million times with each other. You know how I feel about those. And, and I think, you know, if there's anything that I can't stand in a movie, it's a movie that I can't care about. And so that's a great pick. I love the leap that we're taking from cats to out of Africa. I have, I have worked diligently in my adult life to never watch this movie. Not because I didn't care about it as a kid, but because even the cover art looks dull to me. Like, is there a font? Is there a font that's just boring? Is there a boring font? Because that's the, that is the poster for out of Africa. I was like, do you need a nap out of Africa? You have clearly put a lot of thought into the first film that you set me up with. Unlike anything I have sat down with, certainly throughout this pandemic, I'm looking forward in a disgusting kind of way to how much I'm going to hate this experience. What a great pick. Kudos to you. So <laughs> the big question is, what's the bottom five? All right. So the bottom five for this, we could have gone with a lot of things, right? I mean, given that Out of Africa won so many Oscars that are clearly such an indicator of high quality, we could have gone with bottom five Oscar winners, bottom five Oscar performances, something along those lines. But that just seemed too pedestrian to me. So what I really wanted to do was something that is present in every single movie, the romantic subplot bottom five romances and then okay. and because we are pretty modern guys right mm -hmm. romance sets it up it doesn't have to be a couple it doesn't have to be a man and a woman it could be a man and a. can it just be how much silent bob loves a good bag of weed mike it can be whatever you want it to be and that's the beauty of film jitsu it'll be whatever we want it to be. I think that ends our show for today about assholes. <laughs> we'll see you next time when Mike has to review Out of Africa. So until then, I'm Jay. And I am Mike. And we'll see you next time.
karate Stalno mislim na te, hoću znat sve kate Vježbat ću sate i sate Karate, karate, jednoću dok zadnji mi kjaj You know, I, I, um, and I know we've talked a lot of Hitchcock in these two episodes. I think I'm going to go on a hitch. I'm going to suspend my Hitchcock. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no. I'm going to suspend my Hitchcock during the asshole episode. Nope. <laughs> Things for the cutting room floor. <laughs> Jason suspending his cock. Oh, boy.